The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White Section 12 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. The Natural History of Selborne Letters 39 to 47 to the Honourable Daines Barrington Letter 39 to the Honourable Daines Barrington Selborne, May the 13th, 1778 Dear Sir, Among the many singularities attending those amusing birds, the Swifts, I am now confirmed in the opinion that we have every year the same number of pairs invariably. At least, the result of my inquiry has been exactly the same for a long time past. The swallows and martins are so numerous and so widely distributed over the village that it is hardly possible to recount them, while the swifts, though they do not all build in the church, yet so frequently haunt it and play and rendezvous round it, that they are easily enumerated. The number that I constantly find are eight pairs, about half of which reside in the church, and the rest build in some of the lowest and meanest thatched cottages. Now as these eight pairs, allowance being made for accidents, breed yearly eight pairs more, what becomes annually of this increase, and what determines every spring which pairs shall visit us, and reoccupy their ancient haunts? Ever since I have attended to the subject of ornithology, I have always supposed that that sudden reverse of affection, that strange anti-storge, which immediately succeeds in the feathered kind to the most passionate fondness, is the occasion of an equal dispersion of birds over the face of the earth. Without this provision one favourite district would be crowded with inhabitants, while others would be destitute and forsaken but the parent birds seem to maintain a jealous superiority, and to oblige the young to seek for new abodes, and the rivalry of the males, in many kinds, prevents their crowding the one on the other. Whether the swallows and house-martins return in the same exact number annually is not easy to say, for reasons given above, as I have remarked before in my monographies, that the numbers returning bear no manner of proportion to the numbers retiring. Letter 40 to the Honourable Daines Barrington, Selborne, June the 2nd, 1778. Dear Sir, the standing objection to botany has always been that it is a pursuit that amuses the fancy and exercises the memory without improving the mind or advancing any real knowledge, and where the science is carried no further than a mere systematic classification, the charge is but too true. But the botanist that is desirous of wiping off this aspersion should be by no means content with a list of names. He should study plants philosophically, should investigate the laws of vegetation, should examine the powers and virtues of efficacious herbs, should promote their cultivation, and graft the gardener, the planter, and the husbandman on the phytologist. Not that system is by any means to be thrown aside. Without system, the field of nature would be a pathless wilderness, but system should be subservient to, not the main object of, pursuit. Vegetation is highly worthy of our attention, and in itself is of the most utmost consequence to mankind, and productive of many of the greatest comforts and elegancies of life. To plants we owe timber, bread, beer, honey, wine, oil, linen, cotton, etc., 
what not only strengthens our hearts and exhilarates our spirits, but what secures from inclemencies of weather and adorns our persons. Man in his true state of nature seems to be subsisted by spontaneous vegetation. In middle climes, where grasses prevail, he mixes some animal food with the produce of the field and garden, and it is towards the polar extremes only that, like his kindred bears and wolves, he gorges himself with flesh alone, and is driven to what hunger has never been known to compel the very beasts to prey on his own species. The productions of vegetation have had a vast influence on the commerce of nations, and have been the great promoters of navigation, as may be seen in the articles of sugar, tea, tobacco, opium, ginseng, beetle, paper, etc. As every climate has its peculiar produce, our natural wants bring on a mutual intercourse, so that, by means of trade, each distant part is supplied with the growth of every latitude. But without the knowledge of plants and their culture, we must have been content with our hips and haws, without enjoying the delicate fruits of India, and the salutiferous drugs of Peru. Instead of examining the minute distinctions of every various species of each obscure genus, the botanist should endeavour to make himself acquainted with those that are useful. You shall see a man readily ascertain every herb of the field, yet hardly know wheat from barley, or at least one sort of wheat or barley from another. But of all sorts of vegetation, the grasses seem to be most neglected. Neither the farmer nor the grazier seem to distinguish the annual from the perennial, the hardy from the tender, nor the succulent and nutritive from the dry and juiceless. The study of grasses would be of great consequence to a northerly and grazing kingdom. The botanist that could improve the sward of the district where he lived would be an useful member of society. To raise a thick turf on a naked soil would be worth volumes of systematic knowledge, and he would be the best commonwealth's man that could occasion the growth of two blades of grass where one alone was seen before. I am, etc. Letter 41 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, July the 3rd, 1778. Dear Sir, in a district so diversified with such a variety of hill and dale, aspects and soils, it is no wonder that great choice of plants should be found chalks, clays, sands, sheep-walks and downs, bogs, heaths, woodlands and champagne fields, cannot but furnish an ample flora. The deep rocky lanes abound with filices, and the pastures and moist woods with fungi. If in any branch of botany we may seem to be wanting, it must be in the large aquatic plants, which are not to be expected on a spot far removed from rivers and lying up amidst the hill-country at the spring-heads. To enumerate all the plants that have been discovered within our limits would be a needless work, but a short list of the more rare, and the spots where they are to be found, may be neither unacceptable nor unentertaining. Helleborus fetidus, stinking hellebore, bear's foot, or setterworth, all over the highwood and coney-croft hanger. This continues a great branching plant the winter through, blossoming about January, and is very ornamental in shady walks and shrubberies. The good women give the leaves powdered to children troubled with worms, but it is a violent remedy, and ought to be administered with caution. 
Helleborus viridis, green hellebore, in the deep stony lane on the left hand, just before the turning to Norton Farm, and at the top of Middle Dorton under the hedge. This plant dies down to the ground early in autumn, and springs again about February, flowering almost as soon as it appears above ground. Vaccinium oxycoccos, creeping bilberries or cranberries, in the bogs of Bin's Pond. Vaccinium myrtillus, whirtle or bleaberries, on the dry hillocks of Walmer Forest. Drosera rotundifolia, round-leaved sundew. Drosera longifolia, long-leaved ditto, in the bogs of Bin's Pond. Comarum palustri, purple comarum, or marsh sinkfoil, in the bogs of Bin's Pond. Hypericon androsemum, tutsan, St. John's wort, in the stony hollow lanes. Vinca minor, less periwinkle, in Selborne Hanger and Shrubwood, Monotropa hippopithis, Yellow Monotropa or Bird's Nest, in Selborne Hanger under the shady beeches, to whose roots it seems to be parasitical, at the north-west end of the hanger. Chlora perfoliata, Blackstonia perfoliata, Hudsoni, perfoliated yellow wort, on the banks in the King's Field. Paris quadrifolia, Herb Paris, True Love or Wonbury, in the Church Lytton coppice, Chrysosplenium oppositifolium, opposite golden saxifrage, in the dark and rocky hollow lanes, Gentiana amarella, autumnal gentian or fellwort, on the zigzag and hanger, Lathrea squamaria, toothwort, in the Church Lytton coppice, under some hazels near the footbridge, in Trimming's garden hedge and on the dry wall opposite Grange Yard. Dipsacus pelosus, small teasel, in the short and long lith. Lathyrus sylvestris, narrow-leaved or wild Lathyrus, in the bushes at the foot of the short lith near the path. Ophris spiralis, ladies' traces, in the long lith and towards the south corner of the common. Ophris nidus avis, bird's-nest Ophris, in the longlith under the shady beeches, among the dead leaves, in Great Dorton among the bushes, and on the hanger plentifully. Serapius latifolia, helleborine, in the high wood under the shady beeches. Daphne laureola, spurge laurel, in Selborne hanger and the high wood. Daphne miserium, the miserian, in Selborne hanger, among the shrubs at the south-east end, above the cottages. Lycoperdon tuber, Truffles, in the hanger and high wood. Sambucus ebulus, dwarf elder, wallwort or danewort, among the rubbish and ruined foundations of the priory. Of all the propensities of plants, none seem more strange than their different periods of blossoming. Some produce their flowers in the winter, or very first dawnings of spring. Many, when the spring is established, some at midsummer, and some not till autumn. When we see the Helleborus fetidus and Helleborus niger blowing at Christmas, the Helleborus hyamalus in January, and the Helleborus viridis as soon as ever it emerges out of the ground, we do not wonder, because they are kindred plants that we expect should keep pace the one with the other. But other congenerous vegetables differ so widely in their time of flowering that we cannot but admire. I shall only instant at present, in the crocus sativus, vernal, and the autumn crocus, which have such an affinity 
that the best botanists only make them varieties of the same genus, of which there is only one species, not being able to discern any difference in the corolla or in the internal structure. Yet the vernal crocus expands its flowers by the beginning of March at farthest, and often in very rigorous weather, and cannot be retarded but by some violence offered, while the autumnal, the saffron, defies the influence of the spring and summer, and will not blow till most plants begin to fade and run to seed. This circumstance is one of the wonders of the creation, little noticed because of common occurrence, yet ought not to be overlooked on account of its being familiar, since it would be as difficult to be explained as the most stupendous phenomenon in nature. Say what impels amidst surrounding snow, congealed the crocus's flaming bud to grow. Say what retards, amidst the summer's blaze, the autumnal bulb till pale declining days. The god of seasons, whose pervading power controls the sun or sheds the fleecy shower, he bids each flower his quickening word obey or to each lingering bloom enjoins delay. Letter 42 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Omnibus animalibus reliquis certus et unios modi, et in suo quique generi incessus est, aves solae vario miatu feruntur, et in terra et in aere. Pliny, Natural History Reader's Note in all living creatures is one means of progression, appropriate each to its own genus. Only birds possess different methods of locomotion to use on the ground and in the air. End reader's note. Selborne, August the 7th, 1778. Dear Sir, a good ornithologist should be able to distinguish birds by their air as well as by their colours and shape, on the ground as well as on the wing, and in the bush as well as in the hand. For though it must not be said that every species of birds has a manner peculiar to itself, yet there is somewhat in most genera, at least, that at first sight discriminates them, and enables a judicious observer to pronounce upon them with some certainty. Put a bird in motion, et vera in kesu patuit. Reader's note, and the bird that it really was, was obvious from its way of flight. End reader's note. Thus kites and buzzards sail round in circles with wings expanded and motionless, and it is from their gliding manner that the former are still called in the north of England gleeds, from the Saxon verb glidan, to glide. The kestrel or wind-hover has a peculiar mode of hanging in the air in one place, his wings all the while being briskly agitated. Hen-harriers fly low over heaths or fields of corn, and beat the ground regularly like a pointer or setting dog. Owls move in a buoyant manner, as if lighter than the air. They seem to want ballast. There is a peculiarity belonging to ravens that must draw the attention even of the most incurious. They spend all their leisure time in striking and cuffing each other on the wing in a kind of playful skirmish, and when they move from one place to another, frequently turn on their backs with a loud croak, and seem to be falling to the ground. When this odd gesture betides them, they are scratching themselves with one foot, and thus lose the centre of gravity. Rooks sometimes dive and tumble in a frolicsome manner. Crows and doors swagger in their walk. Woodpeckers fly volatu undoso, opening and closing their wings at every stroke. 
and so are always rising or falling in curves. All of this genus use their tails, which incline downward, as a support while they run up trees. Parrots, like all other hook-clawed birds, walk awkwardly, and make use of their bill as a third foot, climbing and ascending with ridiculous caution. All the gallinae parade and walk gracefully and run nimbly, but fly with difficulty, with an impetuous whirring, and in a straight line. Magpies and jays flutter with powerless wings and make no dispatch. Herons seem encumbered with too much sail for their light bodies, but these vast hollow wings are necessary in carrying burdens, such as large fishes and the like. Pigeons, and particularly the sort called smiters, have a way of clashing their wings the one against the other over their backs with a loud snap. Another variety called tumblers turn themselves over in the air. Some birds have movements peculiar to the season of love. Thus ring-doves, though strong and rapid at other times, yet in the spring hang about on the wing in a toying and playful manner. Thus the cock-snipe, while breeding, forgetting his former flight, fans the air like the wind-hover, and the greenfinch in particular exhibits such languishing and faltering gestures as to appear like a wounded and dying bird. The kingfisher darts along like an arrow, Fern-owls, or goat-suckers, glance in the dusk over the tops of trees like a meteor. Starlings, as it were, swim along, while missile-thrushes use a wild and desultory flight. Swallows sweep over the surface of the ground and water, and distinguish themselves by rapid turns and quick evolutions. Swifts dash round in circles, and the bank-martin moves with frequent vacillations like a butterfly. Most of the small birds fly by jerks, rising and falling as they advance. Most small birds hop, but wagtails and larks walk, moving their legs alternately. Skylarks rise and fall perpendicularly as they sing. Woodlarks hang poised in the air, and titlarks rise and fall in large curves, singing in their descent. The white-throat uses odd jerks and gesticulations over the tops of hedges and bushes. All the duck kind waddle. Divers and auks walk as if fettered, and stand erect on their tails. These are the compedes of Linnaeus. Geese and cranes, and most wildfowl, move in figured flights, often changing their position. The secondary remiges of tringae, wild ducks, and others, are very long, and give their wings, when in motion, an hooked appearance. Dabchicks, moorhens, and coots fly erect, with their legs hanging down, and hardly make any dispatch. The reason is plain, their wings are placed too forward out of the true centre of gravity, as the legs of auks and divers are situated too backward. Letter 43 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne, September the ninth, 1778. Dear Sir, from the motion of birds the transition is natural enough to their notes and language, of which I shall say something. Not that I would pretend to understand their language like the vizier, who by the recital of a conversation which passed between two owls, reclaimed a sultan, before delighting in conquest and devastation. But I would be thought only to mean that many of the winged tribes have various sounds and voices, adapted to express their various passions, wants, and feelings, such as anger, fear, love, hatred, hunger, and the like. All species are not equally eloquent. Some are copious and fluent, as it were, in their utterance, 
while others are confined to a few important sounds. No bird, like the fish kind, is quite mute, though some are rather silent. The language of birds is very ancient, and like other ancient modes of speech, very elliptical. Little is said, but much is meant and understood. The notes of the eagle kind are shrill and piercing, and about the season of nidification, much diversified, as I have been often assured by a curious observer of nature, who long resided at Gibraltar, where eagles abound. The notes of our hawks much resemble those of the king of birds. Owls have very expressive notes. They hoot in a fine vocal sound, much resembling the vox humana, and reducible by a pitch-pipe to a musical key. This note seems to express complacency and rivalry among the males. They use also a quick call and an horrible scream, and can snore and hiss when they mean to menace. Ravens, beside their loud croak, can exert a deep and solemn note that makes the woods to echo. The amorous sound of a crow is strange and ridiculous. Rooks, in the breeding season, attempt sometimes in the gaiety of their hearts to sing, but with no great success. The parrot kind have many modulations of voice, as appears by their aptitude to learn human sounds. Doves coo in an amorous and mournful manner, and are emblems of despairing lovers. The woodpecker sets up a sort of loud and hearty laugh. The fern-owl, or goat-sucker, from the dusk till daybreak, serenades his mate with the clattering of castanets. All the tuneful passeres express their complacency by sweet modulations, and a variety of melody. The swallow, as has been observed in a former letter, by a shrill alarm bespeaks the attention of the other hirundines, and bids them be aware that the hawk is at hand. Aquatic and gregarious birds, especially the nocturnal, that shift their quarters in the dark, are very noisy and loquacious, as cranes, wild geese, wild ducks, and the like. Their perpetual clamour prevents them from dispersing and losing their companions. In so extensive a subject, sketches and outlines are as much as can be expected, for it would be endless to instance in all the infinite variety of the feathered nation. We shall therefore confine the remainder of this letter to the few domestic fowls of our yards, which are most known, and therefore best understood. At first the peacock, with his gorgeous train, demands our attention, but, like most of the gaudy birds, his notes are grating and shocking to the ear. The yelling of cats and the braying of an ass are not more disgustful. The voice of the goose is trumpet-like and clanking, and once saved the capital at Rome, as grave historians assert. The hiss also of the gander is formidable and full of menace, and protective of his young. Among ducks the sexual distinction of voice is remarkable, for while the quack of the female is loud and sonorous, the voice of the drake is inward and harsh and feeble and scarce discernible. The cock-turkey struts and gobbles to his mistress in a most uncouth manner. He hath also a pert and petulant note when he attacks his adversary. When a hen-turkey leads forth her young brood, she keeps a watchful eye, and if a bird of prey appear, though ever so high in the air, the careful mother announces the enemy with a little inward moan and watches him with a steady and attentive look. But if he approach, her note becomes earnest and alarming, and her outcries are redoubled. No inhabitants of a yard seem possessed of such a variety of expression and so copious a language as common poultry. Take a chicken of four or five days old, and hold it up to a window, where there are flies, 
and it will immediately seize its prey with little twitterings of complacency. But if you tender it a wasp or a bee, at once its note becomes harsh and expressive of disapprobation and a sense of danger. When a pullet is ready to lay, she intimates the event by a joyous and easy soft note. Of all the occurrences of their life, that of laying seems to be the most important, for no sooner has a hen disburdened herself than she rushes forth with a clamorous kind of joy, which the cock and the rest of his mistresses immediately adopt. The tumult is not confined to the family concerned, but catches from yard to yard, and spreads to every homestead within hearing, till at last the whole village is in an uproar. As soon as a hen becomes a mother, her new relation demands a new language. She then runs clocking and screaming about, and seems agitated, as if possessed. The father of the flock has also a considerable vocabulary. If he finds food, he calls a favourite concubine to partake, and if a bird of prey passes over, with a warning voice he bids his family beware. The gallant Chanticleer has at his command his amorous phrases and his terms of defiance, but the sound by which he is best known is his crowing. By this he has been distinguished in all ages as the countryman's clock or larum, as the watchman that proclaims the divisions of the night. Thus the poet elegantly styles him the crested cock whose clarion sounds the silent hours. A neighbouring gentleman one summer had lost most of his chickens by a sparrow-hawk that came gliding down between a faggot-pile and the end of his house to the place where the coops stood. The owner, inwardly vexed to see his flocks thus diminishing, hung a setting net adroitly between the pile and the house, into which the caitiff dashed and was entangled. Resentment suggested the law of retaliation. He therefore clipped the hawk's wings, cut off his talons, and fixing a cork on his bill, threw him down among the brood-hens. Imagination cannot paint the scene that ensued. The expressions that fear, rage, and revenge inspired were new, or at least such as had been unnoticed before. The exasperated matrons upbraided, they execrated, they insulted, they triumphed. In a word, they never desisted from buffeting their adversary, till they had torn him in a hundred pieces. Letter 44 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne. Monstrent, quid tantum oceano properent se tingere soles hiberni, vel que tardis mora noctibus obstet. Reader's Note. Let them show how the sons of winter speed to bathe in the ocean, or what slows the slow-moving nights. End Reader's Note. Gentlemen who have outlets might contrive to make ornaments subservient to utility. A pleasing eye-trap might also contribute to promote science. An obelisk in a garden or park might be both an embellishment and an heliotrope. Any person that is curious and enjoys the advantage of a good horizon might, with little trouble, make two heliotropes, the one for the winter, the other for the summer solstice and these two erections might be constructed with very little expense, for two pieces of timber framework about ten or twelve feet high and four feet broad at the base, and close lined with plank, would answer the purpose. The erection for the former should, if possible, be placed within sight of some window in the common sitting-parlour, because men at that dead season of the year are usually within doors at the close of the day, while that for the latter might be fixed for any given spot in the garden or outlet, 
whence the owner might contemplate in a fine summer's evening the utmost extent that the sun makes to the northward at the season of the longest days. Now nothing would be necessary but to place these two objects with so much exactness that the westerly limb of the sun at setting might but just clear the winter heliotrope to the west of it on the shortest day, and that the whole disk of the sun at the longest day might exactly at setting also clear the summer heliotrope to the north of it. By this simple expedient it would soon appear that there is no such thing, strictly speaking, as a solstice, for from the shortest day the owner would every clear evening see the disk advancing at its setting to the westward of the object, and from the longest day observe the sun retiring backwards every evening at its setting towards the object westward, till in a few nights it would set quite behind it, and so by degrees to the west of it, for when the sun comes near the summer solstice the whole disk of it would at first set behind the object, after a time the northern limb would first appear, and so every night gradually more, till at length the whole diameter would set north of it for about three nights, but on the middle night of the three sensibly more remote than the former or following. When beginning its recess from the summer tropic, it would continue more and more to be hidden every night, till at length it would descend quite behind the object again, and so nightly more and more to the westward. Letter 45 To the Honourable Danes Barrington Selborne Mugire videbus sub pedibus teram et descendere montibus ornos Reader's Note you can sense the earth groaning beneath your feet, and the ash-trees sliding down from the mountains. End reader's note. When I was a boy, I used to read, with astonishment and implicit assent, accounts in Baker's Chronicle of walking hills and travelling mountains. John Phillips, in his Cider, alludes to the credit that was given to such stories with a delicate but quaint vein of humour peculiar to the author of the splendid shilling. I nor advise nor reprehend the choice of Markley Hill. The apple nowhere finds a kinder mould, yet tis unsafe to trust deceitful ground. Who knows but that once more this mount may journey, and his present sight forsaken, to thy neighbour's bounds transfer thy goodly plants, affording matter strange for law debates. But when I came to consider better, I began to suspect that though our hills may never have journeyed that far, yet the ends of many of them have slipped and fallen away at distant periods, leaving the cliffs bare and abrupt. This seems to have been the case with Nor and Wetham Hills, and especially with the ridge between Hartley Park and Wardley Ham, where the ground has slid into vast swellings and furrows, and lies still in such romantic confusion as cannot be accounted for from any other cause. A strange event that happened not long since justifies our suspicions, which though it befell not within the limits of this parish, yet as it was within the hundred of Selborne, and as the circumstances were singular, may fairly claim a place in a work of this nature. The months of January and February, in the year 1774, were remarkable for great melting snows and vast gluts of rain so that by the end of the latter month the land-springs, or lavants, began to prevail, and to be near as high as in the memorable winter of 1764. 
the beginning of March also went on in the same tenor, when in the night between the eighth and ninth of that month a considerable part of the great woody hangar at Hawkley was torn from its place, and fell down, leaving a high freestone cliff naked and bare, and resembling the steep side of a chalk pit. It appears that this huge fragment, being perhaps sapped and undermined by waters, foundered and was engulfed, going down in a perpendicular direction. For a gate which stood in the field on top of the hill, after sinking with its posts for thirty or forty feet, remained in so true and upright a position as to open and shut with great exactness, just as in its first situation. Several oaks also are still standing, and in a state of vegetation, after taking the same desperate leap. That great part of this prodigious mass was absorbed in some gulf below is plain also from the inclining ground at the bottom of the hill, which is free and unencumbered, but would have been buried in heaps of rubbish had the fragment parted and fallen forward. About an hundred yards from the foot of this hanging coppice stood a cottage by the side of a lane, and two hundred yards lower on the other side of the lane was a farmhouse in which lived a labourer and his family, and just by a stout new barn. The cottage was inhabited by an old woman and her son and his wife. These people, in the evening, which was very dark and tempestuous, observed that the brick floors of their kitchens began to heave and part, and that the walls seemed to open, and the roofs to crack, but they all agreed that no tremor of the ground, indicating an earthquake, was ever felt, only that the wind continued to make a most tremendous roaring in the woods and hangars. The miserable inhabitants, not daring to go to bed, remained in the utmost solicitude and confusion, expecting every moment to be buried under the ruins of their shattered edifices. When daylight came, they were at leisure to contemplate the devastation of the night. They then found that a deep rift or chasm had opened under their houses and torn them, as it were, in two, and that one end of the barn had suffered in a similar manner, that a pond near the cottage had undergone a strange reverse, becoming deep at the shallow end, and so vice versa, that many large oaks were removed out of their perpendicular, some thrown down, and some fallen into the heads of neighbouring trees, and that a gate was thrust forward with its hedge full six feet, so as to require a new track to be made to it. From the foot of the cliff, the general course of the ground, which is pasture, inclines in a moderate descent for half a mile, and is interspersed with some hillocks, which were rifted in every direction, as well towards the great woody hanger as from it. In the first pasture the deep clefts began, and running across the lane and under the buildings, made such vast shelves that the road was impassable for some time, and so over to an arable field on the other side, which was strangely torn and disordered. The second pasture-field, being more soft and springy, was protruded forward without many fissures in the turf, which was raised in long ridges resembling graves, lying at right angles to the motion. At the bottom of this enclosure the soil and turf rose many feet against the bodies of some oaks that obstructed their farthest course, and terminated this awful commotion. The perpendicular height of the precipice, in general, is twenty-three yards. The length of the lapse, or slip, as seen from the fields below, one hundred and eighty-one, and a partial fall, concealed in the coppice, extends seventy yards more, so that the total length of this fragment that fell was two hundred and fifty-one yards. About fifty acres of land suffered from this violent convulsion. Two houses were entirely destroyed. One end of a new barn was left in ruins the walls being cracked through the very stones that composed them. 
a hanging coppice was changed to a naked rock, and some grass grounds and an arable field so broken and rifted by the chasms as to be rendered for a time neither fit for the plough or safe for pasturage, till considerable labour and expense had been bestowed in levelling the surface and filling in the gaping fissures. Letter 46 to the Honourable Danes Barrington, Selborne. Resonant Arbusta. Reader's Note. The woods resound. End Reader's Note. There is a steep, abrupt pasture field, interspersed with firs, close to the back of this village, well known by the name of the short lithe, consisting of a rocky dry soil, and inclining to the afternoon sun. This spot abounds with the Gryllus campestris, or field cricket, which, though frequent in these parts, is by no means a common insect in many other counties. As their cheerful summer cry cannot but draw the attention of a naturalist, I have often gone down to examine the economy of these grilli, and study their mode of life, but they are so shy and cautious that it is no easy matter to get a sight of them, for feeling a person's footsteps as he advances they stop short in the midst of their song, and retire backward nimbly into their burrows, where they lurk till all suspicion of danger is over. At first we attempted to dig them out with a spade, but without any great success, for either we could not get to the bottom of the hole, which often terminated under a great stone, or else in breaking up the ground we inadvertently squeezed the poor insect to death. Out of one so bruised we took a multitude of eggs, which were long and narrow, of a yellow colour, and covered with a very tough skin. By this accident we learnt to distinguish the male from the female, the former of which is shining black, with a golden stripe across his shoulders, the latter is more dusky, more capacious about the abdomen, and carries a long sword-shaped weapon at her tail, which probably is the instrument with which she deposits her eggs in crannies and safe receptacles. Where violent methods will not avail, more gentle means will often succeed, and so it proved in the present case. For though a spade be too boisterous and rough an implement, a pliant stalk of grass, gently insinuated into the caverns, will probe their windings to the bottom, and quickly bring out the inhabitant, and thus the humane inquirer may gratify his curiosity without injuring the object of it. It is remarkable that, though these insects are furnished with long legs behind and brawny thighs for leaping, like grasshoppers, yet, when driven from their holes, they show no activity, but crawl along in a shiftless manner, so as easily to be taken. And again, though provided with a curious apparatus of wings, yet they never exert them when there seems to be the greatest occasion. The males only make that shrilling noise, perhaps out of rivalry and emulation, as is the case with many animals which exert some sprightly note during their breeding time. It is raised by a brisk friction of one wing against the other. They are solitary beings, living singly, male or female, each as it may happen. But there must be a time when the sexes have some intercourse, and then the wings may be useful, perhaps, during the hours of night. When the males meet, they will fight fiercely, as I found by some which I put into the crevices of a dry stone wall, where I should have been glad to have made them settle. For though they seemed distressed by being taken out of their knowledge, yet the first that got possession of the chinks would seize upon any that were obtruded upon them with a vast row of serrated fangs. With their strong jaws toothed like the shears of a lobster's claws, they perforate and round their curious regular cells, having no foreclaws to dig like the mole-cricket. When taken in hand I could not but wonder that they never offered to defend themselves, though armed with such formidable weapons. 
Of such herbs as grow before the mouths of their burrows they eat indiscriminately, and on a little platform which they make just by they drop their dung, and never in the daytime seem to stir more than two or three inches from home. Sitting in the entrance of their caverns they chirp all night as well as day from the middle of the month of May to the middle of July, and in hot weather when they are most vigorous they make the hills echo, and in the stiller hours of darkness may be heard to a considerable distance. In the beginning of the season their notes are more faint and inward, but become louder as the summer advances, and so die away again by degrees. Sounds do not always give us pleasure according to their sweetness and melody, nor do harsh sounds always displease. We are more apt to be captivated or disgusted with the associations which they promote than with the notes themselves. Thus the shrilling of the field cricket, though sharp and stridulous, yet marvellously delights some hearers, filling their minds with a train of summer ideas of everything that is rural, verdurous, and joyous. About the tenth of March the crickets appear at the mouths of their cells, which they then open and bore, and shape very elegantly. All that ever I have seen at that season were in their pupa state, and had only the rudiments of wings, lying under a skin or coat which must be cast before the insect can arrive at its perfect state, from whence I should suppose that the old ones of last year do not always survive the winter. Note, we have observed that they cast these skins in April, which are then seen lying at the mouths of their holes. End note. In August their holes begin to be obliterated, and the insects are seen no more till spring. Not many summers ago I endeavoured to transplant a colony to the terrace in my garden by boring deep holes in the sloping turf. The new inhabitants stayed some time, and fed and sung, but wandered away by degrees, and were heard at a farther distance every morning, so that it appears that on this emergency they made use of their wings in attempting to return to the spot from which they were taken. One of these crickets, when confined in a paper cage and set in the sun, and supplied with plants moistened with water, will feed and thrive, and become so merry and loud as to be irksome in the same room where a person is sitting. If the plants are not wetted, it will die. Letter 47 to the Honourable Danes Barrington Selborne Far from all resort of mirth save the cricket on the hearth. Milton's Il Penseroso Dear Sir, while many other insects must be sought after in fields and woods, and waters, the Gryllus domesticus or house cricket resides altogether within our dwellings, intruding itself upon our notice, whether we will or no. This species delights in new-built houses, being like the spider pleased with the moisture of the walls, and besides the softness of the mortar enables them to burrow and mine between the joints of the bricks or stones, and to open communications from one room to another. They are particularly fond of kitchens and bakers' ovens, on account of their perpetual warmth. Tender insects that live abroad either enjoy only the short period of one summer, or else doze away the cold, uncomfortable months in profound slumbers. But these, residing as it were in a torrid zone, are always alert and merry. A good Christmas fire is to them like the heats of the dog-days. Though they are frequently heard by day, yet it is their natural time of motion only in the night. As soon as it grows dusk, the chirping increases, and they come running forth, and are from the size of a flea to that of their full stature. As one should suppose, from the burning atmosphere which they inhabit, they are a thirsty race, 
and show a great propensity for liquids, being found frequently drowned in pans of water, milk, broth, or the like. Whatever is moist they affect, and therefore often gnaw holes in wet woollen stockings and aprons that are hung to the fire. They are the housewife's barometer, foretelling her when it will rain, and are prognostic sometimes, she thinks, of ill or good luck, of the death of a near relation, or the approach of an absent lover. By being the constant companions of her solitary hours, they naturally become the objects of her superstition. These crickets are not only very thirsty, but very voracious, for they will eat the scummings of pots, and yeast, salt, and crumbs of bread, and any kitchen offal or sweepings. In the summer we have observed them to fly, when it became dusk, out of the windows and over the neighbouring roofs. This feat of activity accounts for the sudden manner in which they often leave their haunts, as it does for the method by which they come to houses where they were not known before. It is remarkable that many sorts of insects seem never to use their wings, but when they have a mind to shift their quarters and settle new colonies. When in the air they move volatu undoso, in waves or curves, like woodpeckers, opening and shutting their wings at every stroke, and so are always rising or sinking. When they increase to a great degree, as they did once in the house where I am now writing, they become noisome pests, flying into the candles and dashing into people's faces, but may be blasted and destroyed by gunpowder discharged into their crevices and crannies. In families at such times they are like Pharaoh's plague of frogs, in their bedchambers and upon their beds and in their ovens and in their kneading troughs. Note, Exodus, chapter 8, verse 3, end note. Their shrilling noise is occasioned by a brisk attrition of their wings. Cats catch hearth crickets, and playing with them as they do with mice, devour them. Crickets may be destroyed, like wasps, by files half filled with beer, or any liquid, and set in their haunts. For being always eager to drink, they will crowd in till the bottles are full. The End of Section 12 of Gilbert White's The Natural History of Selborne